Welcome to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. May the Word of God be a blessing to you. Connect with us and consider giving online at lifespringchurch.us. I've got a question for you this morning to start off. What is communion? What is communion? Well, probably the first thing we all go to because we're sitting in a church service is the ceremonial process of Christian churches where we remember the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Where we pass, well, we don't pass, but we take and partake of the cup and we partake of the unleavened bread and we do it in remembrance of him. And I wonder today, does the word communion, is it bigger than just a ceremonial practice? Now, you may think as we go through this service today that it would be a great day to do communion. This probably would qualify as a communion sermon, I guess. But we're not taking communion today. We're eating all kinds of different food today. Not in representation of the Lord and Jesus Christ, but in fellowship one with another. But does communion hold a greater meaning than just ceremonial remembrance of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? If you biblically look up the word communion, it simply means or or includes the meaning of having fellowship. Fellowship with Christ. So we're going to take a deeper look this morning in what does it mean, what does it look like when we have fellowship with God? Fellowship with God. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. We're going to read a a couple different passages from Matthew 26 this morning. Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, I'm at verse 17. Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thine house with thine disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the evening, evening, or evening, was come, he sat down with the twelve. I'm going to skip down to verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink Henceforth of the fruit of the vine, of fruit of this vine, until the day when I drink it with, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, he went into the Mount of Olives or into the Garden of Gethsemane. If you, well, thank you first for standing for the reading of the word. You can be seated this morning. This is what we would traditionally call the first. Communion service. The first passing of the 
fruit of the vine and the first breaking of the bread to be shared among those who are in fellowship or communion with God. The elements here represent the blood, which represents the death of Christ, the ultimate redemption for us. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail here today. And his body represents the bread of heaven come to us broken so that we could be in closer relationship with him. The elements, the blood and the bread, represent to us covenant relationship and consecrated relationship. And so to get to where we're going today, I need to take a little bit of a journey. Today is not a helicopter message. Today is not let's all get in and land and talk about where we are. But today will involve a little bit of a journey. It's more of a uh, taxi ride. I guess taxis are kind of outdated. It's more of an Uber ride. <clears throat> we'll have Greg pick us up and take us where we're headed today on the ride. So enjoy the scenery while we get there. The elements represent covenant and consecration. So first, let's talk about covenant a little bit. There's a, a rule that we often follow in Scripture, and it, it's the rule of first mentions. When was the first time this concept, this principle, this word, this idea is mentioned in Scripture? And, and what's the significance of it being the first time that it's mentioned? If you go to Genesis chapter 6, we find the first mention of covenant. Genesis 6 and 17 through 19, it says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life. From under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of everything of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. The first mention of covenant is found... In a, in a setting that is a little precarious. Covenant is found in the middle of death. The judgment of God is where covenant is, is first found. But, but inside the judgment of God, we find this gem, this precious principle where God says, I will if you will. Let's make a pledge one to another. Let's covenant together. Noah, you build an ark. You bring in your family. You house the animals. And I will save you and I will protect you. Everything else that was going on in the world was to destroy flesh. It was to destroy the works of the flesh. It was to destroy men's minds, who Scripture says in the days of Noah was continually upon evil. Their minds had become so polluted that they couldn't even think about the goodness of God. They couldn't even think about pure things. Their mind was continually warped 
trained upon, set upon the evil and the wicked around them. And God said, because these are unrepentant people and they have fallen so deep into their their own thoughts, we're just going to swipe them off and start all over. Noah, I'll make a covenant with you. Just as the ark was the saving of Noah and his family, the ark was the instrument by which the covenant with God was brought into Noah's family's life, so is there an avenue or a vehicle used to bring us into covenant with God. Noah's family was saved through the ark, and we are saved through the church and the obedience of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20-21 tells us, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I preach to you this morning? That it's more than just our ability that can save us. It's more than just our ability to live righteous. It takes more than just our ability to put away the filth and the works of the flesh. But it takes a divine covenant from God. It takes a divine work from heaven to save a sinner. What a beautiful covenant God gives to us through the gospel message. The covenant of his blood which comes upon us because he was willing to robe himself in flesh. Come and live among us and die on a cross and shed pure innocent blood to make a covenant with you and him. I think it was last Sunday or a couple of Sundays ago we mentioned and I just want to reiterate it today. He did not make a covenant with God and humanity. God made a covenant between himself and And you as an individual. God is not going to save humanity as a whole. Regardless of what, well, they say. God will save us individually. By the work of grace in each of our lives independently. When I surrender my heart to him. He becomes Lord of my life. When I am obedient to the gospel, His power of grace and mercy and redemption is alive and working in us. Jesus set His covenant in place when He died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose again. We die when we go to repentance. We are buried when we go into the waters of baptism. We rise again and become a new creature in Christ. We are made alive in Him by the infilling of the Holy Ghost. So if I could say today, when Jesus tells us to take this drink, it is the blood of the New Testament. He was telling us, you are partaking in covenant. You're partaking in a covenant relationship with God. 
I think this is why oftentimes we find such a reverence and respect for the ceremonial process of communion. That is right. We should. We ought to live that way with communion. Because we understand that this is deeper than my humanity. This feeds and goes all the way down to the source and the core of who we are. This is not a man-made covenant with another man-made entity. But this is a covenant between the Almighty God and my soul. This is a covenant between the eternal part of me and the eternal being who lives on forever. God didn't die on a cross to redeem my flesh. He died on a cross to save my soul. He died on a cross so that the eternal part of me would not have to spend its eternity separated from him. He died and shed his blood. His covenant was so that the eternal part of me could spend eternity with its maker in heaven. Our flesh is merely a temporary vehicle in which we reside from the beginning of what we would call time until the end of what we would know as time. But once what we recognize as time is over, our soul will continue. And I pray today that your soul has been raptured and your soul has partaken in the covenant relationship with God. And his blood has been applied to your life. And his name has been made applicable to you. And you're living redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when he says take this cup and drink... It is the blood of the New Testament. He's telling us we're partaking in one-on-one covenant with Him. Covenant is spiritual. We do things in the natural realm through covenant that impact the spiritual realm. The gospel is probably the easiest and most, most relevant application of that. Can I be honest with you? There's... Really nothing super spiritual about bending your knee at an altar or a chair or a living room couch or pulling off in a parking lot and draping yourself over the steering wheel and praying a prayer of repentance. It's a physical act of placing our humanity in a posture of submission. But that fleshly act impacts the spirit realm. Because in that posture, we then begin to utter words of surrender. And we begin to utter words of of forgiveness. And we begin to utter words of apology. And we begin to utter words of covenant with God. Lord, if you'll forgive me of my sins, I covenant, I promise, I'll do these things for you. Lord, if you'll forgive me one more time of my mistakes, I'm going to do right this time. I'm going to walk away from it. I know my honesty today, I'm preaching to Christians. And the prayer of repentance happens more than once in our life. Paul said, I die daily. I think there's a principle there that says it probably should happen every day. Some of us maybe more than once a day. This is a physical act that impacts the spiritual. It's a natural act that impacts the spirit realm where we are in covenant with Him and we surrender to that covenant. 
So the next time someone says, let's take the cup, oh, this is more than just ceremony. This is taking the blood of Jesus Christ and remembering the covenant he has with us. Abraham was told by God to offer his one son of promise. He had a son outside of promise, but he had one son of promise. God said, I want you to take your son of promise. I want you to lay him up on an altar. I want you to build a fire underneath him. I want you to kill him and offer him a sacrifice to me. Now, immediately, all of our humanity says, well, that's just brutal. Why would a God, I don't want to serve a God like that. I don't want to serve a God that's mean and, and ask for human sacrifice. That's pagan. That's heathenistic. Well, hold on. That's not the end of the story. It may do us well to read the whole story before we form an opinion here. Abraham. Bible calls him the friend of God. Packs up his servants. Packs up the wood. Packs up the fire, packs up his son, and heads to the mountain. And they get to the base of the mountain. And Abraham tells the servants, you guys stay here. The lad and I, and if you'll allow me to interject, the instruments and supplies are going to go up the mountain. And we're going to worship God. I'm going to go to this mountain and I am going to make an act in flesh that is covenant with my God. He takes this child, the miraculous child born of Sarah who was barren until her later years. This young child, he takes him to the top of the mountain. Fully intent that he was going to shed the blood and consume the flesh in fire. He was committed to giving 100% to God in this covenant. And if you've read the story, you understand he went to the mountain. He built the altar. He laid the wood in place. He placed his son up on the altar. He pulled out the instrument to take his son's life. And as he was drawing back to give the fatal blow, he was interrupted. He was interrupted by the angel of God, which says, no, 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 you don't have to do this. God knows your heart. God understands where you're going. And God was laying for us and setting for us a principle God was putting in place for us an understanding that there will come a time when death must be upon us. But in that moment, God said, you can take your son off the altar and if you'll look behind you in the bushes, I've provided a temporary replacement sacrifice for this moment. And we understand that later on God gives the law to Moses and codified inside of that law is the replacement sacrifice of an animal to be made unto God. But beyond that, we read in the New Testament, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, 
to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Can I tell you today... We don't have to offer animals. You don't have to offer a human sacrifice. Jesus solidified the covenant between your soul and your eternity, your soul and him by the death that he gave us upon the cross. His blood set in order a covenant that can never be wiped out. Your sin is not too great for God's blood. God can forgive anybody's sin. God can forgive all sin. God can forgive you if you sin again. The amens aren't very strong this morning. He can forgive you if you sin again. I know my audience today. I'm preaching to Christians. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all take it all the way back to before we ever had a relationship with God. And we all say, yeah, we were sinners. And God saved me. Could we take that verse out of our past and put it in our present? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are days that I don't do right. I'm just as human as everybody else. There are days you don't do right. And we have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And God doesn't look at us and say, well, my blood was only good for the first time. He doesn't look at us and say, my covenant with your soul was only for a single instance. He says, my blood's strong enough. My grace is powerful enough uh, my mercy is extended and will last long enough uh, that anytime you have a fault or a failure uh, as John said uh, we can come before the throne of grace uh, and confess our sins uh, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins uh, and cleanse us from all righteousness all unrighteousness this is the power of the covenant with God The blood represents covenant. The body, the flesh, the bread represents consecration. Again, let's go back to the, uh, the law of first uses. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament that represents the word consecration is kadas. It simply means to sanctify or to consecrate. If you take either one of those words and you dig into them a little bit deeper, it means to set aside or to separate. It's where in the Greek we get the, the word holy from. To be holy unto God. The word holy just simply means separated unto God. The first use of this Hebrew word is found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Didn't take very long for God to get to separating things. And God said, or God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. 
Can I just propose the idea to you? That way before Moses ever got the law on the mount, way before the commandment ever said, keep the Sabbath holy, way before all of that happened in the wilderness with the children of Israel wandering around for unbelief, God in the very beginning said, I'm going to take a day, I'm going to take a time, and I'm going to take a period, and I'm going to set it aside, and I'm going to sanctify it. I'm going to make it holy as unto the Lord. Stay with me for a minute. I want to tell you, we need to take a day. We need to take the time. We need to take, and if I could use it today, Sunday would be the right day. And we need to dedicate it to God. We need to make a commitment to God. We need to consecrate that day unto the Lord. We need to make sure that if anything comes up on Sunday, it's second priority. Because God's first priority on Sunday. What about this? What about that? Can I be very honest with you today? Paul, in his teaching, told the people, do as I do. Follow me as I follow Christ. I am a nobody from nowhere. I do not need anything put in my hat today. I don't need feathers. I don't need anybody to sing Yankee Doodle to me. I don't need lapel pins. I'm okay. But God asked me to pastor this church, so I have to stand up as the example today. So excuse the personal reference, but it's the example. If that makes you uncomfortable, I guess you're going to have to ask God to help you. <laughs> me and my family have made a decision, and we have dedicated Sunday unto the Lord. Well, you're a pastor. You have to be here on Sunday. Actually, I don't. I can schedule vacation time on Sunday. There's plenty of people we can hire to come in and preach. Before you ever make it to the, the role of pastor, you've got to first be a good saint. Before you ever make it to being a good saint, you first got to understand the role of being redeemed. Sunday has always been a dedicated day I'm talking about consecration today. Consecration is when we set stuff aside for God or we set stuff aside to get it out of our lives because we want to serve God. Here at LifeSpring Church, we really only ask for three hours out of the week. A couple hours on Sunday and one hour on Wednesday to consecrate to the Lord. Now, Some people may feel like that's, that's a big ask, but... I just want to tell you, when we were saints, before we were leaders, we had choir practice at 8.30. We had prayer, 9.45, 9.30, whenever choir practice got done. We had Sunday school at 10. We had church at 11. And when altar call got done, it was probably 115 or 130. You can do the math. That's five to six hours on Sunday. And then we had midweek study, which is normally about an hour, hour and a half. We were given six to seven hours dedicated to the service of the Lord. And there were still times in our lives where I needed more Jesus. 
I don't really feel bad asking us to commit to three hours a week to do our service to the Lord. I don't feel bad asking us to consecrate a Sunday and say, I'm going to set aside from 11 o'clock. If you go to our website, it says we plan for a 90-minute service. Jesus has the right to trump that. But if you can dedicate 11 o'clock to 1230 to Jesus Christ on every Sunday, I want to tell you there's a blessing that comes in consecration. It's taking of the flesh. It's taking of the bread and breaking it for a consecration unto God. This is the first mention of sacrifice or not sacrifice of sanctification in scripture is taking a day and making it holy and separated unto the Lord so yes it was codified in the law of Moses but it's more than the law of Moses God did it in the very beginning and I want to be like Jesus The word we're looking at today is the word consecration. So this Hebrew word has both meaning in sanctify and in consecrate. So the first use of the word consecration is found in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 3. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise hearted whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. That they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him. That he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Can I tell you today, consecration is all about the natural realm. We do things in the natural realm that impact the natural realm when it comes to consecration. There are... I guess the best word I've come up for this is there are residual effects in the spirit world because of the consecration we make in our lives. But let's be honest. Consecration is about me doing stuff in the flesh, in the natural realm, that impacts the natural realm. There are so many specific tangents that my brain wants to run down today. But I'm going to let the Holy Ghost speak to us as individuals. And lead us. I want to talk about the concept today and the principle today because we're we're looking at the scenery as we're headed to a destination. We do things here that impact us here. The Bible teaches us that consecration or the setting aside of things or the separating of things unto God is what differentiates us from the world. Let's draw a contrast between these, these two words we've talked about. We've talked about sanctified and consecrated. Sanctification, there's your big religious word, sanctification. That means that something that God has taken and separated unto himself. God took the seventh day and separated it unto himself. When we are obedient to the gospel... He takes us and separates us from our sin unto himself. That's the beginning work of sanctification in our lives. When we are buried in the waters of baptism, he takes us and completely removes the stains and all of the 
curse of sin from our life. That's a sanctification process. When he fills us with his spirit, we have a different outlook on life. We're a new creature in Christ. That separates us. That differentiates us unto God. That's the continuing work of sanctification. And as we continue to live for him, God will continue to do things in our lives that, that, that separate us unto him. Consecration is us doing things that separate us unto God. Someone bows their knee in repentance. They make a confession that they want the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior, and they confess and consecrate to God. I'll no longer kick the dog. I'll control my anger. It's a consecration. I'll no longer cheat on my wife. I'll no longer go out and, and get plastered every Friday night and spend all my family's money. I'll no longer whatever consecration they're making at an altar of repentance. And we probably all made consecrations at the altar of repentance. When the Spirit fills us and we're filled with the Holy Ghost and we have this, this new vitality, this new life within us, our prayer time at that moment is oftentimes filled with consecration. Lord, here's all the stuff I'm going to do for you. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll say anything you want me to say. I'm saying the same things you guys said when you prayed the prayers. Lord, you could call me to the remotest corner of Africa. I'd go right now. <laughs> we make consecrations unto God. We set aside things in our lives or we separate ourselves unto God. This is what differentiates us from the world. There is a biblical expectation that when we begin to live for God, we no longer appear, look, act, or associate with the things we once appeared, looked, acted, and associated with. We take on a new identity in Christ. The biblical principle we find in its first occurrence of Scripture is that man was setting themselves apart by the representation of consecration was Aaron in the clothing that he wore. He wore a special garment that differentiated him from everybody else. We all okay? There are other biblical teachings that tell us that we should be defined by our appearance. The separation of the sexes, the identity of our gender should be represented by the outward appearance that we have. God wants us to be known as His. We should look like Christians. We should talk like Christians. We should act like Christians. We should do things that Christians do and not do things that sinners do. I'm not a Christian church. Everybody still all right? Consecration involves many areas of our life, and I dare say it should involve every area of our life. Here's what consecration looks like. Everything I do or say should go through the filter of does this identify me closer with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Because consecration is about identity. 
And if it doesn't, the next question is, does this distract from me being identified with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? This is consecration. When Jesus took the bread and he broke it, he called it his flesh. It was the natural. We do things in the natural. We surrender our flesh. We sacrifice our flesh in consecration to God. He understands that there's going to be true flesh sacrifices that have to be made in our lives. Not just ceremonial death, but flesh has to die. This is consecration unto God. What a serious supper Jesus and the disciples were having. I don't know that they fully grasp because it's later on in the in the storyline, the timeline, excuse me, where, where Jesus, the scripture says that Jesus revealed it all to them. He he took away the ignorance that he had placed, the, the inability for them to understand that he had placed the, the dimly lit room that they were in. He he removed and gave them revelations that they understood the fullness of all that they had been taught. They're simply sitting in a room. Where the man who had just washed their feet just told one that you're getting ready to betray me. And now he's picking up bread and holding up a cup. Talking about drinking the blood and eating the flesh. Is this guy we're following, is he all there? Is he? Is he? Is he sliding off the deep end? I've really preached to get us to this moment today. It provides us the setting for what God wants to say to us and speak to us today. And that is this. Take a step back from the detail that we've been involved in so far this morning. Let's take a, a step back and look at the Last Supper with the disciples. And you will begin to understand that the context of blood and flesh... And juice and bread is all in the context of fellowship. They were gathered together to celebrate Passover. They were having Passover meal together. They were eating together. We're going to do that in a little bit. We're going to eat together. And while they're sitting there eating this meal, Jesus begins to do what he does. But, and it begins to echo in their ear. This isn't the first time I've heard him talk about this. There's got to be something to this because he's bringing this up again in his teaching. If you go back to the book of John, chapter 6, verses 35 through, or 53 through 58, excuse me. Jesus is teaching to the multitudes, and he says unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last supper. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. This setting, the context of this first mention of bread and, and excuse me, the first mention of blood and flesh is, is far different than the Passover meal. Jesus is teaching the multitudes of people. And what this setting lacked, the other setting had. And the result of the first setting and the result of the second setting is vastly different. When Jesus is teaching the multitude, they all begin to gather their, chi- their kids and their children. And they begin to pick up their, their little blanket that's been sitting on the ground. And they fold it all up and put it in the knapsack. And they're all like, we're, this guy's, we're out. And the hillside becomes spotted with followers of Jesus. The multitude turns into a crowd. The crowd turns into a gathering. The gathering turns into a small group of 12. And Jesus looks at them and says, you guys leaving too? But he brings the 12 into this room on the Passover meal and he begins to speak again and he begins to talk to them. And the difference between the first setting and the second setting is fellowship. first setting Jesus was just proclaiming his word out loud to the masses but in the second there is a close intimacy between him and the hearer the literal word of God is now being spoken into the ear of those who are in relationship with him the difference between a crowd that hears the the message of consecration and the message of covenant and they reject it and walk away and the crowd that hears the message of covenant and consecration and buys in and receives it, the difference is their level of fellowship with the master. In fellowship, the word of God is given context and it's made practical to us. In fellowship, the word of God is giving meaning. It has purpose. It becomes effective in our lives. What I'm preaching to you today is we must be in fellowship with God or our covenants and our consecrations fall short. They don't meet and live up to what it is we expect from them. Because they have to be in the context of fellowship with God. Fellowship is required for covenant and consecration to have a full impact on our lives. You can covenant with God and God can covenant with you. But if there is no fellowship, the covenant is just empty promises. I know of saints, 
I've been around saints, and I understand there are saints uh, who have made lots of promises to God, and they understand all of God's promises to them, uh, and they still day after day and week after week and year after year, and it seems for lifetimes, question how come the promises of God seem so distant? Uh, how come the promises of God seem so far away from me? How come the covenants that God has made to me uh, and I've made to God seem so empty? I know the answer today. The answer is there's no fellowship in your covenant with God. There's no time of one-on-one -on -one with God. There's no intimacy in the covenant. It's simply an empty promise. It's simply an act of trying to appease or trying to please God. Can I tell you today, God's ego is not stroked by my promises. God's not made to feel more powerful because I made a covenant to him. But the thing that God loves most, the thing that God loves most is that sweet hour of prayer. The thing that God loves most is when my promise is backed by fellowship. Consecration without fellowship it's just legalistic living. You can sit down and write a rule list as long as you want and follow every one of them. But if your list that you're following is simply to please God and you have no relationship, all you're doing is following a list of rules. It requires fellowship. For the covenant and the consecration to have meaning in our lives. There's something that happens when you begin to take your covenant and your consecration. And you begin to wrap them in fellowship. You begin to hear the voice of God more clearly. You begin to see the hand of God moving in your life. You've talked with him. You've lived with him. When he stands up from the table and he grabs the goblet and he says, this represents my blood, you understand what he's talking about. When he picks up the loaf of bread and he begins to break it and he begins to speak to us and the Holy Spirit begins to call us and point out things in our lives, it now has context because we're in relationship with him. We have fellowship with God. Yes, I honor and yes, there are times, normally three or four times a year, that we do communion where we literally drink the juice and eat the bread in remembrance of him but is communion just simply an act of ceremonial practice or is communion something more I declare to you today it is something more communion is fellowship with God Communion is more than covenant. Communion is more than consecration. Communion is fellowship with God that involves covenant and consecration. No, drinking his blood is not a literal act. But rather, it's having a personal covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Eating his flesh is not a literal act, but it's having personal consecrations to God that direct, directly influence my identity and my relationship with him. It requires fellowship. Can I tell you today, there's a reason we like covenants. Covenants, because covenants live in our emotion. Everybody likes a promise. I can prove it to you. We have gotten to the stage where Adeline understands counting. And she also understands the, the idea of reward. And so I can hold a little sucker in my hand and say, if you eat five more bites, I promise... I covenant with you that you can have this sucker. And she gets emotional. She gets wrapped up in the promise. You know what? I'm going to get a sucker. All I got to do is eat five more bites. And she's so good, she can count them down for you. She'll eat one and she'll look at you and say, four more. Like, you better get ready. Three more. Only one more. Do you know why that, it's a simple covenant. It's a simple promise. You know why that matters to her? Because there's a relationship between her and I. My promise isn't without honesty. My promise carries a reality. If you'll finish, you get the sucker. Sometimes we don't know if God's going to fulfill his promises or not because we have no relationship with him. We've not grown in fellowship with him. It just seems like words on a page and a celestial being somewhere in the far beyond that's barking out some promises to all of humanity. Oh, it makes a difference when I begin to read this book and I read a promise. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. It's more than just a promise to humanity. God said he would never leave me and he would never forsake me I know it to be true not because I read it on the pages of a book because I experienced it in my life when the good times were going I had fellowship with him and in the bad times I had fellowship with him and he proved himself faithful covenant we like covenant because it's emotionally based it's based on a promise, God's promises. And God's promises are yea and amen. And he will fulfill his promises. And we get excited about it. If you're faithful in your stewardship, God will open the windows of heaven. Rebuke the devourer. Cause men to give to you. Press down, shaking together and running over. Ah, covenant with God to give every time. Then you get laid off on your job. Covenants beyond emotion. It has to have fellowship or it becomes empty promises. There's a reason we like consecration. Stay with me. Consecration is fleshly, natural things done to impact the fleshly, natural things in our life. We see consecration from a natural perspective. And our natural perspective means it's based on merit and identity. We all want to be known for who we are. Sometimes we get a little warped in what that's like. 
It's like the comic strip I seen one time. Two teenage boys walking down the hall at high school, junior high. Both of them, oh, this is back in the 90s, so you have context. Both have them on real big baggy pants, big baggy shirts. Looked exactly the same. Walking down the hallway, this comic strip. Two boys dressed exactly the same. And they're talking to each other and one says, my parents just don't understand my individuality. We all want to be identified for who we are. We all want to be known as who we are. That's a fleshly desire. We all do things based upon merit. You don't believe that? Go to work tomorrow and tell your boss, don't pay me this week. I'm just going to work because I love it. Now, we, we do things in the flesh because of merit. But let me tell you today, your consecrations to God can't be for merit or for simply identity's sake. That's works. And we're not saved by works. We're saved by the grace of God. We do works because we have faith in God. I consecrate this to God because I have faith that my relationship with Him is going to grow deeper because I did it. There's some things my eyes don't look at because I'm in consecrated relationship with God. There's some things my ears don't listen to because I'm in consecrated relationship with God. There's some things that when you look at me, they'll not be upon me for an outward appearance because I'm in consecrated relationship with God. It's identity that says this one is set aside for God. But it only has value when it's based in relationship. Because if it's not based in relationship, our covenant, or excuse me, our, con our consecration becomes about merit and identity. Well, look at me. Look what I'm doing for God. Look at all the feathers in my hat. Look at all the pins on my lapel. It requires fellowship. Our consecration and our covenant has to be wrapped in fellowship. Covenant transforms through relationship from burdened to sacred. Consecration becomes the result of relationship and not just the driver of relationship. You can preach this message in any pulpit in America and there will be people that walk away and say, that preacher's just trying to tell me how to live. No, this preacher's trying to tell you the value of a relationship with God. And if you have a relationship with God, it will impact the way that you live. Stand with me this morning. First Corinthians chapter 11, it tells us that as often as we take and drink and eat the bread of communion, we are to do it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. And it is true that as a congregation, we take communion together and we remember the covenant and the consecration that Christ made for us. But could I submit to you this morning, and I am closing, that the remembering should be connected to more than just the ceremony 
the remembering, the remembering, excuse me, should be founded in the fellowship with Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 tells us that I may know him. Anybody want to know him? And the power of his resurrection. Anybody want to know about the power of his resurrection? And the fellowship of his sufferings. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's only one way your consecration and your covenants get real. It's when you fall in fellowship with him. Because when we fall in fellowship with him, yes, it may feel like suffering to this flesh. But we are being made conformable unto his death. And because of his death, we have new life. Let it die because you'll come alive again. Let it pass because there's a new life God wants to give you. You'll only find the new life in fellowship with Christ. Communion reminds us of the fellowship that must exist. To give meaning and purpose to our relationship with Him. So this is what I submit to you today. Every time you renew your covenant. Every time you bow your knee and pray a prayer of repentance. Every time you have to tell your flesh no. Every time you pray. And you have to pray until the Holy Ghost fills you fresh and new again. Let that be a remembrance of the covenant with God. Let that be the covenant relationship that draws you closer to Him. Let that moment be a remembrance of His blood and the price that He paid and the covenant He made with you. Every time you have to honor or make a new consecration to God... Let it be done in remembrance of Jesus Christ. I honor my consecration today because I'm in relationship with Him. And there's no relationship greater than being in relationship with God. It really boils down to this. And this is my last verse for today. Everything I do I do it as unto the Lord. That's what Colossians teaches us. Colossians 3, 17. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Thank you for listening to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. Join us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit us online at lifespringchurch.us.